0: 300,000, if uh, if you do the math, that is a, a big enough chunk of the electorate to really swing the vote here.
1: You think? 300,000? Yeah, that that could swing the vote. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering i get down the stairs. To the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Yep Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you From Pacifica Radio and in sunny Los Angeles This is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast FM, KSO in Cottage Grove, out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM, WLRI in Lancaster, out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM, KAKU, the voice of Maui, up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and of course, coast to coast and around the world, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and of course, Blanketing the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, Muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast. Uh have a lot of, surprisingly, a lot of breaking news early in the week uh, to get to today, sort of shuffling the deck as we go. On today's broadcast, we will be talking momentarily about growing concerns. Finally, some in the media are beginning to uh, grow concerned about this. I have been concerned about this for quite a while. What's What's about to happen in the state of Wisconsin, and not just the horse race, but the ability for voters to participate in that horse race at all. Thanks to a new law that is now in place for the first time in a major election in the Badger State. We'll get to that momentarily with someone on the ground in Wisconsin. Uh, But before that, uh, several pieces of breaking news today. One out here in California where Governor Jerry Brown has signed a bill into law giving California the nation's highest statewide minimum wage of $15 an hour. Very proud of us out here in the Golden State for that. Uh, This, uh, of course, it won't happen until 2022. It won't get to $15 an hour until 2022. Um, But still, this is a huge deal. Uh, And hi, Desi, you're looking at me. Are you agreeing it's a huge deal or not agreeing it's a huge deal?
2: I wholeheartedly agree that the $15 minimum wage, even if it's a slow phase in, it's better than nothing. It is a big deal and will make a huge difference in California's economy.
1: And this comes at, well, yeah, it's going to crash our economy. It's going to kill us, (laughs) all that job loss. We talked a little bit about it uh, on our our previous show and uh, hope to speak to uh, a financial journalist about this very, very soon. Was hoping to do so today. But all of this breaking news uh, that I'll get to shortly has sort of shuffled things around. Uh, you know, to find out what will be the effect. Will this be, as its critics say, the the ruination of of the Golden State and for that matter uh, of the Empire State? Because a similar effort in New York uh, now, both this and the one in New York in California and New York mark, mark the most ambitious moves yet, according to the AP, to close the national divide between rich and poor. Experts say that other states may follow as well, given Congress's reluctance to act despite entreaties from the president. This is about economic justice. It's about people. It's about creating a little, tiny amount of balance in a system that every day becomes more unbalanced, says California Governor Jerry Brown, uh, that before signing the bill at the Ronald Reagan State Building in downtown Los Angeles on Monday. Of course, Republicans and business groups warn that the move could cost thousands of jobs.
2: Oh, heavens.
1: Yes, it could.
2: Americans finally get a raise.
1: Yeah. and But uh, that could cause them to be yeah. fired. Well, and we'll see. Maybe yes, it could. A uh, $15 base wage will have a devastating impact on small businesses in California, according to Tom Scott, the executive director of the state branch of the National Federation of Independent Businesses. But so, not
2: until 2022, when it's actually fifty. Well, that's So the thing. what happens? It, it
1: goes up uh, fifty cents, I think, this year, and then a dollar thereafter, and and that, and it's going to take a while until 2022. Right now, the minimum wage out here in California is ten dollars. So the idea, he goes on ignoring the voices and concerns of the vast majority of job creators in the state is deeply concerning and illustrates why many sac- why many feel that Sacramento is broken. So let me say this and then we'll move on uh to to some more breaking news. Uh you people who run businesses, I run a business. I am not a job creator. They are not job creators. The people who are job creators are the consumers who put a demand on those businesses that require those businesses to hire more people to service those customers. No, those businesses are not job creators. They are not hiring people just because they're swell. They're firing people, as a matter of fact, if they can get away with it. Um, They only hire people when they need to. So, job creators. Man, I hate that. Uh, the, this uh, bill now signed by uh, Jerry Brown will uh, bump the state's $10 an hour minimum by 50 cents next year and to $11 in 2018. It won't even get to 11 until 2018. Uh, and then hourly uh, $1 raises thereafter until 2022. And then it's hooked to uh, to inflation, which is a good thing. So, it will rise and fall with that. Um, so, anyway... More on that in uh, an upcoming thrilling episode of the broadcast, but that is some good news, and I feel like we should start with some good news before everything quickly goes downhill from there. <laughs> Here's some more good news. We got a big decision today from the U.S. Supreme Court on a case that we had discussed on the broadcast with, uh, with voting rights expert Ari Berman back in December of last year, uh, just after this case was heard in oral arguments uh, at the Supreme Court by the then- nine Supremes on the court. Uh, The case was, uh, and is, Evanwell v. Abbott. It was a challenge to something that, frankly, very few felt needed challenging. The idea that our congressional districts all over the country, uh, that they are drawn in in very general terms to include roughly the same number of people in each one of those districts, uh, underscoring the long-held principle of one person, one vote in this country. Very few people, you know, there's a lot of problems with congressional districts, but uh, the idea that they needed to be reapportioned in a totally different way in all 50 states um, (laughs) to make it, uh, well, actually to favor Republicans, let's be straight about it. Uh, No, that was not something people were calling for. So, uh, you know, God forbid that part of our electoral system was okay, despite the gerrymandering and everything else. The idea of one person, one vote based on a similar population, the number of people in each uh, congressional district that was not broken. So, um, you know, but God forbid we should break something that was not already broken.
3: Solving a problem that didn't exist.
1: And that's exactly what the petitioners in this case, a far right uh, right wing attorney, a guy by the name of Ed Bloom and his so-called project on fair representation had tried to do with a case in Texas uh, where he claimed that we shouldn't draw congressional districts with roughly the same number of people in each uh, district around the country. Instead, we should reapportion every single district in every single state to have the same number of eligible voters in each one, not the same number of people, but the same number of eligible voters. Now, how that would even be determined, nobody actually knows because the census doesn't track that stuff. But under this challenge to the long held legal and electoral uh, principle, Children, for example, would not be counted when drawing up congressional districts. Prisoners, both former and, and, and those now out of prison, but who have yet to receive, have their voting rights restored, they would not be counted when we make up congressional districts. Immigrants, both lawful and so-called illegal immigrants, they would also no longer be entitled to any representation in any way, shape, or form. So the point of this case Uh, Evan Evanwell V. Abbott was to redraw these districts all over the country so that eligible voters, not actual people, would retain even more power, specifically to shift power from the urban districts, which tend to vote for Democrats to rural areas that tend to vote more Republican to give Republican voters more power. By completely ignoring the needs and the interests of uh, millions of people living in America who are not eligible to vote at this time for any number of uh, a variety of reasons. Here's how Ari Berman of The Nation uh, described the effort here on the broadcast last December. This is, again, just after oral arguments in Evanwell v. Abbott at the U.S. Supreme Court in December.
0: Many people who are now counted will be excluded because they are not eligible voters, such as those that are under eighteen, uh, people that are uh, not u s not u s citizens both documented and undocumented uh, prisoners for example, who have lost the right to vote uh, and so all of those people will not be counted. If you look at the the math itself, that will mean that fifty five percent of Latinos. 45 percent of Asian-Americans and 30 percent of African-Americans will not be counted towards representation. And that's why this case is such an attack on
1: minority voting representation. And, of course, that's exactly why the uh, plaintiffs in this case were trying to move this case ahead with what they thought would be a friendly U.S. Supreme Court. And now there are many problems, as I said, with the way that we gerrymander our electoral districts in this country. The problem they were trying to uh, claim was a problem here is not you know, that it we don't have enough power to Republicans and rural voters. So who is this guy? this Ed Bloom, who brought this case to the Supreme Court, uh, who the Supreme Court, at least before Scalia died last February, he seemed to allow this guy to bring cases that challenge long-held precedents over and over again. Uh, including the Voting Rights Act, including affirmative action. And why did he feel that it was necessary to bring this challenge to something that nobody or at least very few legitimate election experts had really regarded as broken or unfair? Well, as I say, he's the same guy who successfully brought uh, the case to the Supreme Court that ended up successfully gutting the Voting Rights Act in 2013 by a 5-4 to four vote of the Supremes. He's the same guy who uh, he's got another challenge right now to affirmative action laws to the uh, Supreme Court based on yet another case in Texas. Uh, so here's Ari Berman uh, again from the broadcast uh, this December.
0: It's brought by the same people that challenged the Voting Rights Act, the same people that challenged affirmative action. Uh, and, and seemingly everything that they bring, particularly this one guy, Ed Bloom, and his Project Unfair representation, everything he brings seems to be heard by this supreme court and so it's literally like he's sitting around thinking what's the next way i can try to attack voting rights what's the next way i can try to attack racial equality uh, and they keep thinking of uh, of more and, and and more creative schemes and it's just like they're going through everything Mm -hmm. That was done in the 1960s and challenging it, whether it's the Voting Rights Act or it's the Fair Housing Act or it's one person, one vote. All of these landmark achievements that have been so successful are now under attack. And this is just the next iteration of this.
1: Now, thankfully, this was before before Antonin Scalia died when these groups thought they could get away with it. So uh, Ari Berman's uh, opinion on why Bloom brought this case in the first place? There has
0: been a 50-year attempt uh, to try to restrict voting rights. And one of the things uh, that that I noticed is that uh, there's always just new ways thought up to try to roll voting rights back. Uh, And we've seen a dramatic escalation, I think, uh, of a very old strategy. And now they're figuring out, what more can we do? What's the next way? That we can challenge these things, and they don't seem likely to stop anytime soon.
1: Well, they they didn't seem likely to stop. Now they might, given the uh, the death of Scalia and the way the court has uh, the balance of the court has changed. This effort, I'm happy to say, for now. Based on the one person, one vote principle applying to all persons, not just voting persons, an idea that uh, has been in place since the 1960s, has now been stopped dead in its tracks by an 8 to 0, 8 to 0 unanimous ruling wow. at the US Supreme Court. Now, I I don't know if uh, that happened thanks to the death of Scalia in February and the loss of his significant influence in the uh, on the court and to his ability to convince his right wing brethren to come along with him. But when but when Ari Berman had joined us back in December, there was a lot of concern that this was going to be another one of these five to four right wing majority decisions that could plunge the nation into even more chaos than uh, we are, are already facing. Uh, following the, you know, the Voting Rights Act uh, gutting and everything else uh, and, you know, requiring all 50 states to reapportion all of their voting districts to shift that power to rural Republican voters. So that for now will not happen. Good news. Very good news. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, wrote the opinion for the unanimous eight to zero majority denying this challenge to one person, one vote. She finds, as UC Irvine election law professor Rick Hayson uh, summarizes that Ed Bloom, the, the, the challenger here, his position in this case to require voter population not only is at odds with historic practice, it was also not practically possible given that the data we have uh, doesn't tell us how many eligible voters there actually are or are not uh, in each district. And it would have led to terrible outcomes, including making it basically impossible to comply with the Voting Rights Act requirements for districts that uh, that we do now have, that are now still in place. Justice Ginsburg's opinion holds that districting using total population uh, instead of just eligible voters was consistent uh, with constitutional history, the court's own decisions, and long-standing practices. Ginsburg writes in her opinion for the unanimous majority that history, our decisions— and settled practice in all 50 states and countless local jurisdictions point to the same direction. Total population apportionment meets the equal protection demand by rendering each representative alert to the interests and constituent service requests of all who dwell in the representative's district. Non-voters have an important stake in many policy debates. Children, their parents, even their grandparents, for example, have a stake in a strong public education system and in receiving constituent services. So, uh, that was Ruth Bader Ginsburg from her uh, from her opinion, representing the court's now eight Supreme Court justices. Now, the decision does not mean that states cannot, if they want, uh, try to apportion based on the number of eligible voters rather than population at large, uh, but it clearly rejects the idea that states must do that. So if states like Texas want to do that, they can go ahead, but it's likely going to be subject to a very serious challenge in the future. So there's another happy ending uh, story to another U.S. Supreme uh, Court case this year in the wake of the death of Antonin Scalia. Well, that's good. And uh, for now, at least uh, another happy ending for uh, basic small-D democratic principles in this country. So there's some good news. Uh, And along those lines, over the weekend, Do I have time? Yeah, let me uh, get to a couple more quick stories here before we get to a break. Along the lines, uh, over the weekend, along the lines of small-D democratic principles, we saw, once again, uh, how democracy, yes, it can get a little ugly, but, uh, frankly, that's uh, the very nature of democracy. It does get ugly. uh, It does get messy. And... um, We see that again in uh, two stories uh, developing over the weekend in uh, North Dakota and in Nevada. First, in uh, North Dakota, on the Republican side, Ted Cruz's preferred candidates won the majority of convention delegates available in North Dakota over the weekend. He took 18 of 25 slots in the state And another organizational uh, show of uh, strength over Donald Trump. This is according to uh, Politico. But it's not clear how these um, 18 of 25 uh, from uh, Cruz's slate, how they will actually vote once they get to uh, Cleveland and a contested convention in Cleveland. Several told Politico that they were only leaning towards Cruz or they uh, were simply opposed to Trump. But the thing is about the delegates in North Carolina and the reason they are so sought after by Republicans.
3: North Dakota.
1: What did I say? North Carolina. Oh, yeah. The hell with North Carolina. <laughs> I don't know why I have them on my mind. In North Dakota. Thank you. Uh, the, the reason they are so, so sought after is because they are not bound. They can vote any way they want. Even on the first ballot uh, at the Republican convention. Uh, so well,
3: that could be very interesting. You think? <laughs> that could be
1: very, very interesting. It's very, very valuable. Uh, and and nobody knows how how these delegates really feel, in fact, how they are going to vote. the The state party, the state Republican Party first released its 25 recommended delegates on Saturday afternoon on the convention floor, but Cruz's team, Uh, They put out their own slate um, to its own recommended list of loyalists. But who knows? Who knows if they really will vote for Ted Cruz or Donald Trump or anyone else? They are unbound. So that could be an interesting wild card in Cleveland uh, this July. As if we needed more interesting wild cards for Cleveland in (laughs) July for this uh, Republican convention. There was also some mayhem before the uh, convention started. Uh, Someone, uh, the party chairman, uh, Kelly Armstrong, called for a voice vote and then a visual vote uh, when one of the party activists demanded that delegate candidates state what their preference was. And uh, the party delegates were against it. And they, uh, they, they I mean,
2: didn't want to stand up and say what they were they going to. They didn't want to do. say who they oh. wanted to
1: vote for. And one of those uh, delegates on the cruise slate, Daniel Trainer, said the benefit of being from North Dakota is being for whoever the hell we want. And I'm not going to tell you. Right. So that's uh, that's what happened in North Dakota. But it shows that once again, Donald Trump, uh, I'm sorry, D- Ted Cruz seems to be gaining some momentum over Donald Trump. And now speaking of. Momentum in this case, uh, Bernie Mentum, I guess. Uh, this was uh, the Nevada folks uh, met for uh, county by county. Nevada Democrats met for their conventions for their county conventions, um, over the weekend. Now, you may recall the uh, in the Nevada caucuses way back in, what was that, February, February 20th, the Nevada caucuses, that uh, Hillary Clinton won 20 delegates to Bernie Sanders 15 in those caucuses. And as I've been trying to explain when it comes to caucuses, uh, delegate numbers come out of them, they are largely estimates to be solidified further down the road via county and state conventions and delegate caucuses and so forth. Well, Sanders uh, supporter, a Sanders supporter, was removed at the beginning of the convention, uh, at the as the credentials committee chair, at the request of the Clinton campaign. This caused a lot of stir and drawing some very angry uh, Sanders supporters, claiming that Hillary was trying to remove their person from the credentials committee. In any event, what ended up happening, I think that person was ended up uh, being removed, but in the bargain. Bernie Sanders ended up picking up two delegates, two of Hillary's delegates in the bargain, changing those estimates of the Nevada caucuses from the original 20 to 15 now to uh, 18 for Hillary and 17 for Bernie. So essentially a tie in Nevada. So uh, you remember that Bernie Sanders had lost in New Hampshire just barely and then in Nevada by a bit more. Uh, This was all very early on in the process. But since then, he has won the last 10 caucuses, Colorado, Minnesota, Nebraska, Kansas, uh, Maine, Idaho, Utah, Arkansas, Hawaii, uh, Washington, not Arkansas, uh, Alaska is what I meant by, uh, in many cases, huge landslides. And now he has all but tied Hillary in Nevada. I can only imagine what the. Bernie Sanders supporters would be thinking if Hillary had picked up two of Bernie's uh, delegates. But this is how the process works. A lot of those people who uh, were voted on uh, back in February who were delegates of Hillary's simply failed to show up at the Clark County uh, Convention. That's Las Vegas. Um, And it has uh, succeeded in changing the numbers. So uh, there's that. And now on Tuesday, we move to Wisconsin, about which I am very, very concerned for Bernie, for Hillary, for, yes, Trump and Cruz and everyone else. Actually, I'm not worried about them. I am worried about their voters. And we are going to talk about those worries next uh, on the broadcast with Emily Lonergan of Wisconsin Election Protection. She will join us. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so now more than ever. Please stop by bradblogcom donate. To make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one time only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on, because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. By taking about sixty seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman. From bradblog.com with you here. Uh, As ever, being concerned, being paranoid, if you will, about your democracy is not necessarily a bad thing. And in this case, uh, we have been quite paranoid, quite worried for... Many years, as our listeners here on the Bradcast know and at bradblog.com know, about what's going on in Wisconsin. And in Wisconsin, in fact, on Tuesday, the the state Republicans' photo ID restriction law will be in place for the first time during a major election. That, despite a federal court uh, finding some time ago that this law stands to disenfranchise more legal voters than it could possibly stop fraudulent votes. Nonetheless, an appeals court, uh, a right-wing appeals court, on a rather faulty basis, I should add, has decided for now to let this uh, this law go, go through. And now some 300,000 already legally registered voters in Wisconsin Face the possibility of not being able to cast a vote at all in the primary on Tuesday, much less in the uh, general election this November. Bernie Sanders at a rally in uh, in Wausau, Wisconsin, over the weekend was talking about uh, concerns uh, about this uh, about this photo ID restriction by uh, Wisconsin Republicans and Republicans overall.
4: The idea that we have Republican governors like Scott Walker, who are working overtime to try to figure out ways. Gee, senior citizens may vote against me. How do I make it harder for them to participate? Young people may vote against me. How do I make sure that many of them will not vote? People of color may vote against me. How do I create a situation where it's harder for them to vote? Now, I have been in politics and run in many elections. I've lost some and I've won many but it has never occurred to me for one second to try to figure out a way how I can make it harder for people to vote just because they might vote against me. And I think what Governor Walker and other Republican governors and legislatures are doing is not only shameful, It is un-American in the deepest sense of that word. So I say to Governor Walker, and I say to Republican governors all over this country, if you are afraid to participate in free, fair, and open elections, get out of politics, get another job.
1: That was Bernie Sanders speaking to supporters over the weekend in Wisconsin about the uh, about the state's new photo ID voting restriction that will be in effect for the first time uh, in a major election in the Badger State on Tuesday. They also talked about, and to be fair, uh, Hillary Clinton has been talking about this as well. I have not heard a lot of Republicans Uh, expressing concerns about it, unfortunately, because, in fact, their voters are going to be affected as well. There's an effort right now in Wisconsin to uh, try to help voters get their photo IDs before Tuesday. Um, but you know we're talking about some 300,000, and those are just the ones that are already registered. They talked about it uh, over the weekend with Molly McGrath uh, of Vote Writers on MSNBC. Here's a here's a quick clip from that.
3: There's 300,000. These voters are registered in Wisconsin. They're absolutely eligible to vote, except they don't have that ID to vote. And so these voters are older voters whose driver's license may have expired because they no longer drive. These voters are younger voters, students who are coming to attend school in Wisconsin from out of state and don't get a primary student ID that qualifies them to vote need to go get a secondary student ID. But the really interesting folks are that people coming and moving to Wisconsin and have a driver's license from out of state, they can drive, they can get on a plane, but they can't vote in Wisconsin. And really quickly, because we're running out of time, 300,000 people don't have the ID necessary. How many can you really help before Tuesday? Well, not all 300,000, but we're talking to hundreds of voters, working directly with hundreds of voters, We have four voters coming to the DMV this morning to get their ID. And we're training volunteers to continually reach and get get to all these voters. So no voter will be left behind.
0: All right, Chris, so 300,000, if uh, if you do the math, that is a a big enough chunk of the electorate to really swing the vote here. And those tend to be Democratic voters, the the population most affected by this ID law. So Bernie Sanders and his camp, not very happy, hoping for a big turnout on Tuesday. Back to you.
1: Yeah, it's hard to overstate how important this whole issue is. Well, uh, that was Chris Chansing on MSNBC. Yes, it it is hard to overstate how important this is. That's why we have been talking about it on this show for so long. I wish MSNBC was spending more time talking about that than about the uh, horse race nonsense and Donald Trump and everything else. Joining us now to tell me I'm totally wrong about this, I'm completely worried uh, uh, for for no good reason, is uh, Emily Lonergan. She is with the Legal Coordinating Committee of the Wisconsin Election Protection Group. Uh, Emily Lonergan, welcome to the broadcast.
2: Thanks, Brad. Unfortunately, I don't think I can tell you you're totally wrong (laughs) on your concerns.
1: Really? I I was hoping you were going to calm me down, tell me there was nothing to worry about, because we're looking actually now, uh, Emily, at, uh, well, some very close races, certainly on the Democratic side, potentially on the Republican side as well. Uh, the court uh, in uh, in Wisconsin, both federal court and a state court, uh, essentially agreed that you know there's some 300,000 already registered voters who could be disenfranchised by this law, but. That number could actually be much higher, could it not? Because there's a lot of eligible voters uh, trying to vote for the first time who who also, you know, who may may not already be registered. They're trying to register. They may also be uh, affected here. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. It it certainly is, uh, I believe, going to impact a large number of eligible voters in Wisconsin.
1: What problems have you seen already, Emily, uh, during the early voting period concerning photo ID restrictions? Are are you seeing large numbers? Are you hearing from a lot of people? I know you work with the 866 Hour Vote Coalition, where people should call if they have problems. Are you guys getting a lot of calls? Are you hearing a lot of uh, problems already?
2: We we do hear. So, first of all, uh, we have had voter identification in place at the February election as well. Now, that was obviously... Uh, a very low turnout election in Mm -hmm. Wisconsin. So we were working that day. um, We heard, but that day and uh, for early voting, we've heard uh, some of the concerns are obviously that people don't have the correct identification needed to go to the polls. Uh, Another concern is that poll workers are comparing the address uh, on the photo identification with the registered voter's address, which is incorrect. Um, Poll workers are not supposed to be comparing uh, names excuse me, the uh, address on of the registered voter with the address on the um, identification. I've also heard concerns uh, from individuals who may have, uh, let's say, transgendered clients mm. uh, who are concerned about whether or not the photograph reasonably resembles the uh, individual who is coming to vote. Mm. Uh, so there are a whole host of issues that are Coming into play with voter identification.
1: So to be clear if someone has a driver's license uh, let's say or a, uh, a student ID uh, and I don't know are student IDs uh, state issued uh, student IDs uh, allowable at all in, in Wisconsin? Uh,
2: well well yes but but with a, a big asterisk uh, you you are allowed to use an unexpired identification card. Uh, issued by a Wisconsin-accredited university or college or tech college, uh, but only uh, if it has the student's name, the student's photograph, the date of issuance, the signature of the student, an expiration date no later than two years after the date of issuance, uh, and proof of enrollment. So, yes, you can use uh, a student ID, but uh, there's a pretty big asterisk there, and I don't know uh, that all universities in Wisconsin... In fact, I know that all universities in Wisconsin are not necessarily issuing uh, identifications that comply with those requirements.
1: And and, and that's a big asterisk that... Uh poll workers are expected to know all of those things you just rattled off? All of the poll workers are expected to know uh, each and every one of what may make a photo ID, a student photo ID, uh, allowable and not?
2: Well, that's that's part of the concern here. I mean, certainly poll workers will have resources in front of them that they can consult. So if a student presents a, a student ID, they can look at their list and say, what is it, you know, what is required to make this valid? But part of the problem there is, you know, we already have, uh typically pretty long lines on election day uh and this is adding an entirely extra step uh that is going to add i can i can't even imagine how much longer the lines are going to get as a result
1: and uh, and what I had started to ask you was about the address comparison because that's something that that comes up. So if they do have uh, ID that meets the criteria that is now required by uh, the the Wisconsin legislature and Scott Walker, if they have that ID that meets those requirements, it does not. The address on it does not need to match the address that they are registered to vote. But that is another problem that uh, can be used either purposely or. Uh, accidentally uh, to really uh, busy up the system here and and add increase those lines and problems with access to the polls.
2: That's exactly right. It's it's not a requirement. The address on the identification does not have to match uh, the registered voter's address. And in fact, the poll workers are not supposed to be even comparing the two to, to raise a mm. question with it. But we have certainly received some concerns already both in the February election as well as in early voting uh, that that is in fact taking place Um, that you know you have a poll worker comparing the address Uh, so that's that's concerning for us Uh, another concern of course is uh, the name it has to it has to conform to the registered voter's name but it does not have to be exact Um, so for instance if you are Margaret on your identification but you are Peggy Mm -hmm. uh, at the polling place registered as Peggy you're fine, you should be fine to vote, but that's another concern that we have, that uh, perhaps uh, this is going to be holding up lines and and causing issues uh, for the voters.
1: Yeah, should, uh, should be fine. That was one of the concerns when it came to, uh, uh, there was a, a study recently out of Texas, I think Rice University, finding that a lot of people did not go to vote because they thought they did not have the uh, the right ID to vote under Texas's new Republican photo ID law. But in fact, they did. About half of the people who didn't go because of that reason actually did have the uh, the proper type of ID. Now, I understand that Wisconsin, uh, the law up in Wisconsin actually requires the state to publicize uh, this new law to let voters know about the types of ID that are now allowable, uh, where to go to get them if they, if they don't. Don't have it. Have you seen evidence, uh, Emily Lonergan, in Wisconsin of that advertising campaign? Essentially, that is supposed to be taking place uh, by the state.
2: Well, I can I can tell you this much. I I do know that the Government Accountability Board uh, mm-hmm. has they have uh, put out a campaign called "Bring It to the Ballot" uh, that they're attempting to put out, uh, get the word out, and I, I do think they're you know they're making an effort to make it known. Uh, it certainly has to be posted at polling places. But I, but I can also tell you that uh, I just had a conversation with a lawyer yesterday, uh, and I was talking about the fact that the license can actually be expired uh, as long as it's not. It has, can't be expired before the date of the last general election. Um, so that lawyer didn't know that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I, I think there's certainly a concern, even among uh, those of us who should be more educated in the law, uh because people don't know what it is that that you know satisfies the voter identification requirement and that alone may deter voters from showing up tomorrow.
1: Yeah, even if this goes well, I think the confusion about it is going to make things uh, much more difficult. Uh, Emily, some states have added um Sort of a fallback option uh, in North Carolina, for example, where they uh, implemented a similar law. They had a provision uh, where you could you could swear an affidavit saying that you had a good reason for not being able to get the photo ID, in which case you could cast a uh, a, a provisional ballot. You would be allowed to vote. Is there anything like that here in Wisconsin? If you show up, if you do not have the, the type of uh, photo ID necessary now under this law to vote.
2: Well, there's there's two different things that could happen. If you don't bring your photo identification, uh, you can receive a provisional ballot. Um, and And that ballot essentially is an imperfect ballot that can be perfected by the Friday following the election at four pm. Um, if If, however, a secondary issue that arises with this, if it's an inadequate photo identification, so for example, uh, as I mentioned earlier, if, if mm-hmm. there's a transgendered individual, Uh, who is appearing as male on the license, but is appearing as female uh, when they show up, and the poll worker thinks this individual does not reasonably resemble this photo identification, Um, that actually goes in as a challenged ballot, and there's a whole separate procedure. Well, you can imagine, while that individual does get to cast a ballot, uh, you can imagine that that might deter that individual from coming back to the polls at a later date.
1: I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned about this. Uh, is, uh, I'm, and frankly, I'm concerned about any voter not being able to cast a vote. Uh, but are there concerns that that you know of, Emily, uh, in regard to how this might affect uh, one candidate's voters more than another? And this is both on the Democratic and Republican sides of the aisle. I know that uh, the work that you guys do is is nonpartisan here, but is there a Is there a concern when it comes to, you know, one uh, set of uh, candidates or one candidate being affected more than another, as you understand it, in Wisconsin?
2: Well, as you mentioned, we are nonpartisan. However, I can certainly tell you, and and you can draw your own conclusions, that there are uh, concerns that this will uh, impact certain categories of individuals. Students uh, will certainly be impacted. The elderly will absolutely be impacted. Uh, and minority votes such as the African-American vote will absolutely be impacted um, because these are people that proportionately have uh, don't have the IDs, uh, the identification um, that is required in order to vote. That's just uh, the way the numbers come mm-hmm. out. So, you know, I don't necessarily want to comment on on uh, being concerned over one candidate or one party versus mm-hmm. another, but uh, I'm sure you can draw your own conclusions uh, looking at the individuals who uh, Statistically, don't have the identification that's required to vote.
1: Working with the uh, legal coordinating committee of the Wisconsin Election Protection uh, Group, Emily, uh, is there any good reason for this law? Have you know? Have there been problems with uh, with fraud? And it would have to specifically be the type of you know in person impersonation, uh, you know, polling place impersonation fraud. Is there any evidence that that has actually been a problem in Wisconsin? ever, to your knowledge?
2: No. <laughs> no, there's not. Um, you know, voter, voter fraud, uh, the majority of voter fraud cases in Wisconsin relate to uh, individuals who are uh, convicted felons and currently serving uh, their sentence for mm-hmm. their felony conviction. Those individuals are disqualified in Wisconsin from voting. Um, but that's the, the largest majority of voter fraud cases relates to Uh, individuals who are disqualified due to uh, felony status. Um, Frankly, I don't believe that there has been one case, uh, and I certainly haven't heard anybody pointing out a single case to me, uh, of voter fraud that could have been avoided uh, with with, uh, Mm. voter identification in place.
1: So in the case of those uh, felons, or those former felons you're talking about, they're out of jail, they go in to vote, they don't know they're not allowed to vote, but they have the type of ID. They may have a driver's license because now they're out of jail. Uh, they're not allowed to vote in Wisconsin, but they it, but they do. That would be the type of voter fraud, but that would not be deterred by these photo ID restrictions
2: exactly. there's no there's nothing about uh, that relates to felony status or felon status, excuse me, yeah. uh, with voting and voter fraud. Uh, that relates at all the voter identification. But just before I, I just want to make one point clear. Uh, Not all felons are disqualified from voting. Uh, If you have a felony conviction in your past, that Mm -hmm. does not necessarily disqualify you. You have to be a felon and not yet have had your civil rights restored.
1: Gotcha. OK, thank you for that uh, clarifying. I've got just a minute or two left speaking with Emily Lonergan of Wisconsin Election Protection. Uh, Emily, with with some at least, as we discussed, the uh, 300,000 uh, at risk. And those are the already registered voters. Uh, any idea? How many of these uh, these these photo these free IDs so-called that uh, apparently you have to know to ask for them when you go to the DMV to uh, t- tell them, yes, I'd like it to be free. But any idea how many of those IDs out of some 300,000 uh, already registered voters have been now handed out by the DMV in uh, in recent months uh, you know, by the state of Wisconsin in advance of this primary on Tuesday?
2: You know, I, I don't actually have those numbers, um, so I'm, I'm not sure on exactly how many are out there, but as you noted, um, you know, you have to be uh, aware that you even need to request this identification, mm-hmm. um, not to mention the fact that typically you've got to get yourself over to a DMV, sit through the lines that occur at a DMV, which mm-hmm. in Wisconsin, I'm sure as in any other state, are, are uh, not minimal, they're, they're pretty substantial lines. Uh, And then you have to be able to have all of the documents that are required in order to get that identification. So while I don't know the exact numbers, I can tell you it's no small feat uh, for an individual who, uh, let's say an elderly individual who doesn't have an identification uh, that's able to be used for voting purposes. Uh, It's no small feat for that individual to obtain an identification prior to Election Day.
1: And it was no sp- uh, small feat on Friday, as I understand, when the statewide computer network uh, reportedly went down for a number of hours. And this affected, uh, as I as I understand it, it affected both early voting uh, people, you know, attempting to vote on Friday. I think it was the second to last uh, business day on which uh, early voting was to be allowed. So it affected those voters for uh, two or three hours, voters who were going out of town over the weekend, uh, who needed to cast their early vote on Friday and also those attempting to get photo IDs at the uh, at the DMV what can you confirm what happened on Friday and has there been an effort since then to try to either add early voting hours to make up for it or or uh, and and have any similar problems happened since to your knowledge
2: well so first of all it actually was Friday was actually the last day of early voting in Wisconsin Uh, voting well for whatever reason uh, there is no early voting on Monday uh... so today so friday was actually the last day of early voting Um the system did go down uh... the that impacted both uh... early voting in terms of uh... clerks municipal clerks and and their staff workers attempting to confirm whether or not an individual was registered uh-huh. uh... it did also impact the dmv so i do believe that uh... some DMVs did extend hours on saturday saturday to make up for it uh... but early voting was not extended um, so individuals who did go on Friday were able to cast a ballot, but not without some substantial delay.
1: There is, um, there is some concern, and for good reason, uh, some of the towns in Wisconsin have been adding these uh, w- what I call 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems over the past uh Few years. Uh, and of course, when the, uh, votes cast on those systems can never be uh, uh, verified as, as reflecting the voter intent, unfortunately. But uh, are, are there concerns about those systems uh, going down? And uh, are, are voters, to your knowledge, Emily, in those towns where they have those touchscreen systems, are they now allowed to ask for paper ballots if they prefer to vote on paper rather than the touchscreens?
2: Well, that that is a good question about whether they can ask for paper if they prefer it, and I I unfortunately do not know the answer Mm -hmm. to that. I can tell you that if those machines do go down, the municipal clerks do certainly by statute have to provide paper ballots instead. Um, So, yes, uh, you know, is there a concern about the machines going down? You know, technology always seems to find a way to go down Uh, especially when we need it the most, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, on the other hand, the municipal clerks do certainly have to provide paper ballots uh, in the event that they do go down. Um, And my understanding from the Government Accountability Board is that uh, if they were to go down, let's say, those ballots that had already been cast would not be lost. Um, how how they have managed to secure that I don't know. <laughs> yes. Uh, but my understanding, at least, is that is that they're not going to lose the ballots that have already been cast.
1: Yes. Well, they are just making that up when they say that. Uh, <laughs> s- since the uh, state legislature, I, as I understand it, just added a number of uh, uh, I think veterans IDs that are now allowable. Uh, Emily, before I let you go, and I I don't know if you have this list in front of you, uh, is is it possible to give us a quick idea for those people listening? And what types of ID are now required to vote in the state of Wisconsin. Do you have the, the quick list to run down in front of you by any chance?
2: I do. I do. Yes. Um, so Wisconsin voters can have, uh, as proof of identification, a Wisconsin DOT-issued driver's license, uh, even if your driving privileges are revoked or suspended. Um, It can be expired, but it can only be expired since the date of the last general election. Mm -hmm. Uh, A Wisconsin DOT-issued identification card, again, that can be expired, but only since the date of the last general election. Um, A receipt for either of those two, so in Wisconsin when you go to the DMV, uh, you don't actually walk away with your driver's license uh, card in hand. You Mm -hmm. receive a receipt for the card, uh, and then you get the card in the mail a couple weeks later. That receipt for either the driver's license or the identification card, that's acceptable as proof of identification. Mm -hmm. A military ID card issued by a U.S. uniformed service, uh, it can be expired, but only since the date of the last general election. Mm -hmm. A U.S. passport, again, can be expired, but only since the date of the last general election. A certificate of naturalization that was issued not earlier than two years before the date of an election at which it is presented, an unexpired, uh, or excuse me, an identification card issued by a federally recognized Indian tribe in Wisconsin. An unexpired identification card issued by a Wisconsin-accredited university or college or tech school. But again, only it's only valid if the voter provides proof of enrollment, and that ID has to contain the student's name, the student's photograph, the date of issuance, the signature uh. of the student, and an expiration date no later than two years after the date of issuance.
1: All those and asterisks. And then finally, what yeah. was,
2: say that again? Yeah,
1: I say all of those asterisks you, you mentioned earlier. Yes, yeah. All of those asterisks, yep, yep.
2: exactly. Keep going. Uh, and then the one that was added most recently, uh, in fact, after the date of the last election, the February election, was a veteran's of Veteran Affairs ID card is permissible for voting. And that ID card uh, must either uh, have no expiration date, so some of the older cards don't actually have uh, an expiration date at all. Uh, if it does have an expiration date, which the new ones I understand do, the card cannot be expired.
1: And that was uh, one of the issues. I'm, I'm proud to say I was actually able to get Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court to. Uh, I was able to help get her to change her uh, her opinion on this issue when it came up in 2014 uh when uh, this Wisconsin case made it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court uh said yeah you know we could we you know this this law will be able to go ahead uh as is in the 2016 election uh and she had misstated what types of of photo IDs were allowable and were not allowable that's how confusing it is even uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court in her dissent was unable to keep all of these uh straight uh Emily is 866 our vote is that the best number to call if people have problems on election day in Wisconsin. Uh I know you guys also have a Facebook page at Wisconsin Election Protection and you're on the Twitters at EP Wisco. Uh but uh, what do people do if they run into problems uh at, at the polls on Tuesday in Wisconsin?
2: Absolutely call 866 Our Vote. Uh you can call that number if you have a concern that needs resolution. So in other words, uh, Somebody's being turned away at the polls right now, and, and we need to try and find a way to allow that individual to vote. Um, they can call us after they leave the polling site. They can get us on the phone. We can uh, issue spot with them, try and resolve it, try and figure out a way for them to be able to vote. Uh, with uh, Facebook at Wisconsin Election Protection or on Twitter, both of those sites are monitored by an attorney of our legal coordinating committee, uh, and she is very responsive on messages uh, and tweets and and. Uh, wall posts and, and everything else on social media. So those are all uh, great options to get in touch with us. Uh, the majority of those, uh, if you just want to know where do I go to vote, 866 hour vote the national line will uh, will give you an answer. If it's an issue that is more involved than that, they will... Uh, most likely pass it along to our group so you will get one of our Wisconsin lawyers on the phone.
1: Emily Lonergan uh, with the Legal Coordinating Committee of the Wisconsin Election Protection Group, working with the uh, good folks at 866-OUR-VOTE. Get more information in Wisconsin specifically or report concerns or problems you're having on their Facebook page at Wisconsin Election Protection and, of course, on the Twitters at EP Wisco. Emily, thank you for joining us at the last minute here. I I suspect you've got a, a a busy day and week and maybe year ahead. So I think we will be talking to you again soon in the future. Emily, really appreciate your time today.
2: Thanks so much,
1: Brad. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Say it's only
4: a paper moon Sailing over a cardboard sea But it wouldn't be make-believe if you mm-hmm. believed
1: in me welcome back to your broadcast <laughs> <Yes, it's only laughs> calm down Brad just calm down everything will be fine what I could possibly cold. go wrong <laughs> people in uh, voters in Wisconsin uh, good luck to you on Tuesday And once again uh, please help spread the word uh, for people to call 866 our vote if there are any problems if you see problems if you have problems because, you know, we got some good news uh, today now uh, out of the uh, Department of Justice. It is confirmed that uh, they are, in fact, a- investigating Arizona's election mess from the uh, March 22nd election. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, that's good, except, you know, too late. That's the problem. That's why we missed the uh, the important section of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court gutted that might have stopped what happened in Phoenix in Maricopa County from happening when they— um, cut the uh, county's voting sites from 2000 and uh, from two, 211 back in 2012 down to just 60, which led to impossibly long lines for many people,
2: and folks being turned away or having to go away because they couldn't stand
3: in Four, line for so
1: five, long. six hours in line if they were able to do it. Uh, registrations uh, mysteriously changed to independent from either Democratic or Republican and people unable to vote because of that, because of the closed primaries that they have in uh, in in Arizona. So, you know, great. I'm glad we're having an investigation. I'm glad the DOJ is on that. The Maricopa County uh, recorder, Helen Purcell, the Republican who has been the recorder there for about 30 years, um, She her office has confirmed that, in fact, uh, they have been contacted by the uh, Justice Department's civil rights division. This was uh, last Friday. So there will be that investigation there. That's the good news. Uh, But, you know, bad news is it comes too late. It, It just it you know, you can't do this after the election. And that's why I've been. Trying for so many years to draw people's attention to these concerns, having to, I remember years ago, uh, Des, uh, trying to get the Democratic Party to pay attention. To these photo ID uh, restrictions uh, issues that the Republicans, the scam that they were running right from right after the 2004 elections. Remember when they showed up with that front group called the American Center for Voting Rights, pretended gave a uh, had a uh, they spoke at a at a uh, congressional hearing. And said, oh, yeah, there was fraud in Ohio in 2004. It was carried out by John Kerry and Acorn and the Democrats. There was voter fraud. And they were successfully able to turn everybody away from looking at what really happened in Ohio. And they have been on this long, now what, 12-year march ever since, trying to get exactly these photo ID restrictions that will be in place in Wisconsin on Tuesday. Uh, I am quite worried about that. We will continue to keep our eyes on that and much more as the weeks and months go on. So, good luck, Wisconsin. My thanks to our producer today, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to Emily Lonergan with Wisconsin Election Protection. Remember, 866 our vote if you have any problems in Wisconsin or you see any. Uh, you can also visit them on the Facebooks at Wisconsin Election Protection and on the Twitters at EPWISCO. All right, if you want to contact me, uh, I'm always happy to hear from you. My email, bradcast at bradblog.com, or hit me up on the Twitters and the Facebooks where I am the Brad Blog. We will talk to you again soon. Until then, if you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes. Thanks for those who have given us good reviews over there. We will see you again soon. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.